Book Three, Chapter Six of Letters of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Egypt of the Magicians. The Face of the Desert. From Letters of Travel by Rudyard Kipling. Going up the Nile is like running the gauntlet before eternity. Till one has seen it, one does not realize the amazing thinness of that little damp trickle of life that steals along undefeated through the jaws of established death. A rifle shot would cover the widest limits of cultivation, a bow shot would reach the narrower. Once beyond them, a man may carry his next drink with him until he reaches Cape Blanco on the west, where he may signal for one from the passing Union Castle boat, or the Karachi Club on the east, say four thousand dry miles to the left hand and three thousand to the right. The weight of the desert is on one every day and every hour. At morning when the cavalcade tramps along the rear of the tulip-like dragoman, she says, I'm here, just beyond that ridge of pink sand that you're admiring. Come along, pretty gentleman, and I'll tell you your fortune. But the dragoman says very clearly, Please, sir, do not separate yourself at all from the main body, which the desert knows well. You had no thought of doing. At noon, when the stewards rummage out lunch drinks from the dewy ice chest, the desert whines louder than the well wheels on the bank. I'm here, only a quarter of a mile away. For mercy's sake, pretty gentleman, spare a mouthful of that prickly whisky and soda you are lifting to your lips. There's a white man a few hundred miles off dying on my lap of thirst. Thirst that you cure with a rag dipped in lukewarm water. While you hold him down with the one hand, he thinks he is cursing you aloud, but he isn't, because his tongue is outside his mouth and he can't get it back. Thank you, my noble captain. For naturally, one tips half the drink over the rail with the ancient prayer, May it reach him who needs it, and turns one's back on the pulsing ridges and fluid horizons that are beginning their midday mirage dance. At evening, the desert obtrudes again tricked out as a nautch girl in veils of purple, saffron, gold tinsel, and grass green. She postures shamelessly before the delighted tourists with woven skeins of homeward flying pelicans, fringes of wild duck, black spotted on crimson, and cheap jewellery of opal clouds. Notice me, she cries like any other worthless woman. Admire the play of my mobile features the revelations of my multicoloured soul. Observe my allurements and potentialities, thrill while I stir you. So she floats through all her changes, and retires upstage into the arms of the dusk. But at midnight she drops all pretence, and bears down in her natural shape, which depends upon the conscience of the beholder and his distance from the next white man. You will observe in the Benedicite Omnia Opera that the desert is the sole thing not enjoined to bless the Lord, praise Him, and magnify Him forever. This is because when our illustrious father, 
the Lord Adam, and his august consort, the Lady Eve, were expelled from Eden. Eblis the accursed, fearful lest mankind should return ultimately to the favour of Allah, set himself to burn and lay waste all the lands east and west of Eden. Oddly enough, the Garden of Eden is almost the exact centre of all the world's deserts, counting from Gobi to Timbuktu, and all that land, qua land, is dismissed from the mercy of God. Those who use it do so at their own risk. Consequently, the desert produces her own type of man exactly as the sea does. I was fortunate enough to meet one sample, aged perhaps twenty-five. His work took him along the edge of the Red Sea, where men on swift camels come to smuggle hashish, and sometimes guns from dows that put into any convenient beach. These smugglers must be chased on still swifter camels, and, since the wells are few and known, the game is to get ahead of them and occupy their drinking places. But they may skip a well or so, and do several days' march in one. Then their pursuer must take in greater risks, and make crueler marches that the law may be upheld. The one thing in the law's favour is that hashish smells abominably, worse than a heated camel, so when they range alongside no time is lost in listening to lies. It was not told to me how they navigate themselves across the broken wastes, or by what arts they keep alive in the dust storms and heat. That was taken for granted, and the man who took it so considered himself the most commonplace of mortals. He was deeply moved by the account of a new aerial route which the French are laying out somewhere in the Sahara, over a waterless stretch of four hundred miles, where if the aeroplane is disabled between stations the pilot will most likely die, and dry up beside it. To do the desert justice, she rarely bothers to wipe out evidence of a kill. There are places in the desert, men say, where even now you come across the dead of old battles, as light as last year's wasps' nests, laid down in swathes or strung out in flight, with, here and there, the little sparkling lines of the emptied cartridge cases that dropped them. There are valleys and ravines that the craziest smugglers do not care to refuge in at certain times of the year as there are rest-houses where one's native servants will not stay, because they are challenged on their way to the kitchen by sentries of old Sudanese regiments, which have long gone over to paradise, and of voices and warnings and outcries behind rocks there is no end. These last arise from the fact that men very rarely live in a spot so utterly still that they can hear the murmuring race of the blood over their own eardrums. Neither ship, prairie, nor forest gives that silence. I went out to find it once, when our steamer tied up and the rest of them had gone to see a sight, but I never dared venture more than a mile from our funnel smoke. At that point I came upon a hill honeycombed with graves that held a multitude of paper-white skulls, all grinning cheerfully like ambassadors of the desert, but I did not accept their invitation. They had told me that all the little devils learned to draw in the desert, which explains the elaborate and purposeless detail that fills it. None but devils could think of etching every rock outcrop with wind lines, or skinning it down to its glistening nerves with sand blasts. 
of arranging hills in the likeness of pyramids and sphinxes and wrecked town suburbs of covering the space of half an english county with sepia studies of interlacing and recrossing ravines dongas and nullahs each an exposition of much too clever perspective and of wiping out the half-finished work with a wash of sand in three tints only to pick it up again in silver point on the horizon's edge this they do in order to make lost travellers think they can recognize landmarks and run about identifying them till the madness comes the desert is all devil device as you might say blasted cleverness crammed with futile works always promising something fresh round the next corner always leading out through heaped decoration and over-insistent design into equal barrenness there was a morning of mornings when we lay opposite the rock-hewn temple of Abu Simbel where four great figures each sixty feet high sit with their hands on their knees waiting for judgment day at their feet is a little breadth of blue-green crop they seem to hold back all the weight of the desert behind them which none the less lips over at one side in a cataract of vividest orange sand the tourist is recommended to see the sunrise here either from within the temple where it falls on a certain altar erected by Rameses in his own honour or from without where another power takes charge the stars had paled when we began our watch the river birds were just whispering over their toilette in the uncertain purplish light then the river dimmered up like pewter the line of the ridge behind the temple showed itself against a milkiness in the sky one felt rather than saw that there were four figures in the pit of gloom below it these blocked themselves out huge enough but without any special terror while the glorious ritual of the eastern dawn went forward some reed of the bank revealed itself by reflection black on silver arched wings flapped and jarred the still water to splintered glass the desert ridge turned to topaz and the four figures stood clear yet without shadowing from their background the stronger light flooded them red from head to foot and they became alive as hurriedly and tensely yet blindly alive as pinioned men in the death chair before the current is switched on one felt that if by any miracle the dawn could be delayed a second longer they would tear themselves free and leap forth to heaven knows what sort of vengeance but that instant the full sun pinned them in their places nothing more than statues slashed with light and shadow and another day got to work a few yards to the left of the great images close to the statue of an Egyptian princess whose face the very face of she there was a marble slab over the grave of an English officer killed in a fight against the dervishes nearly a generation ago from Abu Simbel to Wadi Halfa the river escaped from the domination of the pharaohs begins to talk about dead white men thirty years ago young English officers in India lied and intrigued furiously that they might be attached to expeditions whose bases were sometimes in Swakim sometimes quite in the desert air but all of whose deeds are now quite forgotten occasionally 
the dragoman, waving a smooth hand east or southeasterly, will speak of some fight. Then everyone murmurs, oh, yes, that was Gordon, of course, or was that before or after Omdurman? But the river is much more precise. As the boat quarters the falling stream like a puzzled hound, all the old names spurt up again under the paddle-wheels. Hicks Army, Val Baker, El Teb, Toka, Tamai, Tamanyeb, and Osmandinga. Her head swings round for another slant. We cannot land English or Indian troops. If consulted, recommend abandonment of the Sudan within certain limits. That was my Lord Granville, chirruping to the advisers of His Highness the Khedive. And the sentence comes back, as crisp as when it first shocked one in eighty-four. Next, there is a long reach between flooded palm-trees. Next, of course, comes Gordon, and a delightfully mad Irish war correspondent, who was locked up with him in Khartoum. Gordon, eighty-four, eighty-five, the Suakim Berber Railway, really begun, and quite as really abandoned. Corti, Abu Clare, the desert column, a steamer called the Safie, not the Condor, which rescued two other steamers wrecked on their way back from a Khartoum in the red hands of the Mahdi of those days. Then the smooth glide over the deep water continues. Another Suakim expedition, with a great deal of Osmandinga, and renewed attempts to build the Suakim Berber railway. Hashin, say the paddle wheels, slowing all of a sudden. MacNeil Zareba, the fifteenth Sikhs, and another native regiment, Osmandinga in great pride and power, and Wadi Halfa, a frontier town. Tamai once more, another siege of Suakim, Gemaiza, Handab, Trinkitat, and Tokar, eighteen eighty seven. The river recalls the names. The mind at once brings up the face and every trick of speech of some youth met for a few hours, maybe, in a train on the way to Egypt of the old days. Both name and face utterly vanished from one's memory till then. It was another generation that picked up the ball ten years later and touched down in Khartoum. Several people aboard the cook boat had been to that city. They all agreed that the hotel charges were very high but that you could buy the most delightful curiosities in the native bazaar. But I do not like bazaars of the Egyptian kind, since a discovery I made at Aswan. There was an old man, a Muslim, who pressed me to buy some truck or other, but not with the villainous camaraderie that generations of low-caste tourists have taught the people, nor yet with the cosmopolitan light-handedness of appeal which the town-bred Egyptian picks up much too quickly but with a certain desperate zeal, foreign to his whole creed and nature. He fingered, he implored, he fawned, with an unsteady eye, and while I wondered, I saw behind him the puffy pink face of a fez dew, watching him as a stoat watches a rabbit. When he moved, the dew followed, and took position at a commanding angle. The old man glanced from me to him, and renewed his solicitations. So one could imagine an elderly hare thumping wildly on a tambourine, with the stoat behind him. They told me afterwards that Jews own most of the stalls in the Aswan Bazaar. 
the Mussulmans working for them, since tourists need oriental colour. Never having seen or imagined a Jew coercing a Mussulman, this colour was new and displeasing to me. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org